HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. We're currently on our season break, but this week we wanted to bring you a bonus segment about what it takes to end hunger in America. Back on episode 10, we brought you a few highlights from our trip to Slow Food Nations. Many of you reached out about one segment in particular, a clip of our interview with John Eichard. So this week we bring you that interview in its entirety. We first heard Eichard speak at the Slow Food Leadership Summit and became intrigued by one of his big ideas. He believes that there is a way to solve hunger in the U.S. It requires us to view food as a public utility and place a larger emphasis on human relationships. But first, to better understand Eichert's point of view, it's important to know a bit about land-grant universities. He holds a PhD in agricultural economics from one, the University of Missouri, and spent his career in land-grant universities across the Southeast. Land-grant universities began with the passage of the Morrill Land-Grant Act of 1862. It gave each state 30,000 acres of land, and proceeds from the sale of these lands allowed states to establish colleges dedicated to branches of learning related to agriculture and the mechanic arts. Today, most land-grant university curriculums go beyond agriculture and engineering, although they tend to have strong programs in one or both areas. Many have robust agricultural extension programs, which help disseminate their research to farmers. Agricultural extension became Eichert's career focus, and by 1984, he became the director of Extension Agricultural Economics at the University of Georgia. But it was around this time that his way of thinking began to shift. The U.S. was experiencing a farm crisis. A few years earlier, President Carter enacted a grain embargo against Russia, so ag exports decreased. Then, record production caused commodity prices to fall, while farmers were faced with high interest rates, high oil prices, and falling land values. It was a perfect storm. By the mid-1980s, the crisis reached its peak, there were record foreclosures, and the farm credit system experienced large losses, the first time that had happened since the Great Depression. Amid this crisis, Eichert began to see the failures of the policies he had been advocating to farmers. He reoriented his work towards sustainable agriculture and economics and brought this outlook to the land-grant system. 
He returned to the University of Missouri in 1989 under a cooperative agreement with the USDA. His mission was to develop research and educational programs related to sustainable agriculture. I started off my interview with Eichard by asking about his experience working in land-grant universities in the South. When I uh, had an opportunity to go to land-grant university, University of Missouri, for my undergraduate education, being a poor kid from a small dairy farm down in southwest Missouri, I thought it was the greatest opportunity in the world. And I still think land-grant university as an idea was one of the greatest opportunities ever for just the common person's university. It was very affordable. I could work my way through college. I went back there to get all of my education. So I was a real strong believer in the land-grant concept. It was the people's university, work for farmers, people people in rural communities, people across society. And I got my education in agricultural economics, and when I got out of the university, I had an opportunity to work in universities at extension, which meant I could work with farmers and people in rural communities. But the approach to agriculture and economics that I'd been taught is that that what we really needed to do in agriculture is to improve the economic efficiency of agriculture. And I think it made a lot of sense at that time based on what we knew. This would be back in the late 60s, early 70s. If we could make agriculture more efficient, reduce the cost of production in agriculture, then we could make food more affordable. We were going to make good food affordable to everyone. We were basically going to get rid of hunger. That's what I thought we were all about. And we were going to do that in a specific way, adopt the industrial model of agriculture, Culture, specialized, standardized, consolidated into larger farms. I taught, you know, farm for the economic bottom line. This is going to be good for society as a whole. Get big or get out, I used to say, you know, economies of scale and this sort of thing. But it was all justified by this social mission that we were doing something really good for society. But then I got into the 1980s and we were working with farmers, and I won't go into great detail here, but, but it was a time whenever farmers had done what we had done, they got big rather than got out, but they borrowed a lot of money during the 1970s. We experts were telling them they could do that, and they ended up with large debts at high interest rates uh, that they really couldn't pay when we got into the 80s. We got into a domestic recession, a global recession, the export markets dried up, and they were losing their farms. I said, there's something fundamentally wrong with that kind of agriculture. It's, it's not meeting the needs of farmers. I didn't go and learn this to drive farmers out of business. Later, I could see what it was doing negative for rural communities. And after that, I began to understand what we we're doing with land, with soil erosion, uh, pollution of the air and water with agricultural chemicals. And I said, I can't stick with this. So my fault with the university, Langrand University, is not that what we started out to do wasn't well intended. But I think now, after 30, 40 years of experience, we see that that didn't work. My problem with Langrand University today, I won't dwell on it, is they continue to persist in somehow this continued industrialization of agriculture in pursuit of the economic bottom line is going to be for the greater good of society and humanity. And the evidence is clear that it simply will not. Do you think that land-grant universities have the opportunity to change their approach and to, and to kind of undo some of the negative impacts that they've contributed to? I think they have the opportunity if they return to truly being the people's university instead of just focusing blindly on the economic bottom line and saying we've got to function for the greater good of the people, not just the material well-being of people, but the social well-being of people within communities and foster strong relationships among people. And we have an ethical and moral responsibility for the future of humanity create a sustainable agriculture that meets the needs of all in the present without diminishing opportunities for the future. That opportunity 
opportunity is still there, mm-hmm. but we just haven't grasped it. There are some great people within the land-grant university system that are following that mission personally, but our institutions simply haven't taken it up. Um, you speak a lot about agroecology. Can you briefly explain, explain what that means to you and how it affected your economist point of view? Yeah. Well, agroecology is a combination of the, the science of ecology with agriculture. And the first principle of, of ecology is you can't do just one thing. And, and so agroecology is seeing agriculture as an integral part of the, of the living system of seeing the, the soil, the microorganisms in the soil, and the plants and the animals, and the farmers, and the farm family, and the, and the farming community. It's all a part of an integral whole. And anything you do to one part of that system affects that, that system as a whole. So anything that we do on, on the farm, any one activity on the farm, not just doesn't just affect the biological activity in the soil, for example, but it has a it has a, a, an impact on the plants, and the impact on the plants is an impact on the animal, which is an impact on the farmer, which is an impact on the family. Which is, so you, you've got to try to anticipate as many of those unintended consequences as you can. But the bottom line of that, as opposed to industrial agriculture, which basically tries to separate agriculture from nature, tries to separate people from the vagaries of nature. We're trying to escape from the harmful things that have come out of nature. And so if we try to isolate and replace the productivity of the soil with fertilizers, replace crop rotations with chemicals and things like that, we're saying we don't want to be dependent. We don't want to be a part of nature. Agroecology says we inherently are a part of nature and that we have to learn to, to, to farm, to work, and live in harmony with this system of which we're a part. And there's another important part of that is when you see ourselves as a part of that larger whole, it doesn't just end at the farm and the community. It goes on to society as a whole. And it sees human society, we as humans, are just one species among many. And we're interdependent with all of the other living and non-living things of the earth. And there are certain principles or laws of nature that we have to respect, not just gravity and the physical laws, laws of human relationships. If we want relationships, we have to have trust and kindness and courage. We need to love and be loved, to care and be cared for. These are laws of human relationships that we have to respect because we can't change. And if we see ourselves as a part of that system, then we begin to shape our society to be consistent with the laws of nature, shape our economy and shape our agriculture to be consistent with the needs of society within that nature. And on that train of thought, one of the things that you mentioned yesterday at the Leadership Summit that has really stuck with me that I hadn't really considered before is food as a public utility. Can you briefly explain right. you know, what you think on, on that? And, right. and how, we, how we, could, we could make that happen? Right. Well, as an economist, I come to the conclusion after studying long back, long time, that, that if we're going to address the, the issue of food security, meeting the needs of the present is the first condition of sustainability, sustainable agriculture, sustainable food system. If we're going to do that, we can't rely on markets. You know, I, I say hunger today is discretionary. Because there's plenty of food in the U.S., there's plenty of food in the world to feed everybody. But if we rely on the markets to get it to people, then the markets are only going to feed those people who have the money to compete in the marketplace. And some of us have more than enough money to, you know, to, to compete for a corn crop to produce fuel for our cars while they're hungry people, or, or to buy food and waste 40% of it rather than leave it for the hungry people. So we have to go somewhere else. So we've tried to rely on government programs, but unfortunately... 
we, we have relied on programs that are, that are at, the, at the state and national level, which are inherently impersonal again. Those economic relationships are impersonal, buying and selling rather than really seeing the people that produce the food or people that, that consume it. Our government programs have been impersonal. Our, our charities have become impersonal. So if we're going to deal with the issue of food security, the first condition of sustainability, we have to do it in a different way. Mm. And I've said, okay, what if we consider food as a basic human right, which they do within the food sovereignty movement, and then what if we see of a way of ensuring that right within the context of the U.S. society? And I said, okay, we're not socialism, communism didn't work any better than capitalism in feeding the hungry people. Mm -hmm. So what can we do? We can look here and we can see things that are working here. We can see the public utility. The public utilities we depend upon for water, we depend on sewage, electricity, natural gas, a whole range of things that we have public utilities. And the purpose is, is, is to separate those functions that are essential public services from the vagaries of the market. For example, when I grew up, we didn't have electricity until right before I started high school. That was because we were on way out in the country. It made no economic sense to run that electric wire down that road about three or four miles for two or three of us. Our electric bill is probably less than a dollar a month. Now, what economic sense? But somebody decided those people out here in the country have a right to electricity. So they formed an electric co-op, a public utility, that brought the electric to us. I'm saying that's what people need that are hungry today. That's if we're going to solve food security, we need to say these people have a right to, to good, healthful food. And, and we're going to find a way to get it to them. But we have to do that in a way that kind of insulates this system from the vagaries of the market. It won't feed people. And it has to be a personal system. It has to be one where there's a sense of connectedness between the people that are getting the food and the people that are producing the food. And there's a sense of connectedness between the people in the community. So when they say, okay, we're going to ensure this right for food, then they know the children that are in school. They see those kids. And the people that are having the kids that are, you know, that are hungry today that get food, then they see the people that are really supporting them. And there's a sense of personal connectedness and responsibility there that you don't get in the market and we're not getting through the impersonal program, uh, either charities or the others. And I think we could largely fund these programs in two different ways. If we focus on raw to minimally processed food and help people learn to prepare those foods and to select them, then what we're de only dealing with then today, about 85% of what we spend for food is not for the food, but it's for the processing, transportation, preparation, those sort of things. So we'd be working on this base that's much smaller in terms of total economic cost than the retail cost of food today. So that's, that's one thing that, that we could uh, you know, really focus on in terms of, of savings. So if we brought in then all the public assistance programs, the this, this school lunch programs, the SNAP programs, uh, WIC programs, for people that voluntarily wanted to become a part of the utility, they wanted to meet their food needs with utility, then I think the existing government programs that we're spending for the full retail cost of food, if we focus on the raw materials, then would largely meet it. But what's important is that we have a, a community sense of responsibility that if there is a gap, we'll make it up. And we're also buy as much food as we possibly can from our local producers, and we will pay them a fair market price. We'll pay their cost of production plus a reasonable return, just like we do in a public utility for someone that's providing coal or something else. So we use that concept to kind of insulate or isolate uh, provision of food as a basic right 
from the market forces and from the impersonal forces, and we make a, a personal, social, and ethical commitment to make sure that everybody in our community uh, has enough food. And I think we'll benefit more socially and ethically from knowing that we're doing the basic right thing that any economic cost it would ever impose upon us. I'd just like to see somebody try this idea somewhere. And you said that if you were... If you were to put money on it, you would you would be willing to bet that yeah. this will happen soon. They asked me what I would do <laughs> if I had millions of dollars that I could invest in something. And I said, if I had millions of dollars that I can invest in something, I would fund all sorts of pilot projects so we could find out people could try these ideas and work out the bugs. I don't claim to have the solutions. I just think it's an idea worth trying. And if you get enough imaginative, creative people involved in something that want to make it work, I have confidence, I have hope that they would be able to do it. If you want to learn more about John Eichard, visit his website at johneichard.com. That's J-O-H-N-I-K-E-R-D.com. He'll be participating at Slow Food International's gathering, Terra Madre, in Turin, Italy, this September 2018. You can learn more about Terra Madre at slowfood.com. That's it for this week's show. We'll be back next Friday with another bonus feature, so make sure you subscribe to Meet and 3 on your favorite podcast app. If you love what you're hearing, please recommend us to your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Get in touch if you have feedback or any ideas. You can reach us anytime at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is David Tattashore. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.